It's <laughs> then again. With who? Wait, let me check. Ken and Glenn. Hey, that's so. That is so convenient because we're here in front of the microphones. Oh my gosh! You know, folks, J.R.R. Tolkien. No, what? you're not. You, you didn't accidentally push the last episode. Was, we'll start uh, this one the same. Was uh, exactly. He was the uh, Bosworth professor of Anglo-Saxon at Pembroke College, Oxford. That's different from when he was Merton professor of <laughs> English College, language and yes. literature at Merton College. Why do we say that yet again? Because we, he's such a hugely influential person on us. But also, because once again, he fits the theme, Anglo-Saxons. And especially, since we're talking about Anglo-Saxon literature, professor of Anglo-Saxon literature. That's what he did. Did the definitive translation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Did the essay, Beowulf and the Critics, that established, hey, let's study this epic poem as a poem. And not a, not a quaint thing to not, get people to pronounce Right. Not, not a linguistic weird. study, yes. but actually look at it as a work of art. He, he revolutionized, seriously, at Oxford, the, the way that Anglo-Saxon literature and language are taught. So, you know, we've got we to give a shout-out to it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and, you know, and one could argue that Anglo-Saxon, the study of Anglo-Saxon as a language and as a body of literary work might not be taken as seriously today if it did not have the weight of Tolkien behind it. I think you're right. I mean, it would still be there, right. but it would be in the dusty corners, right. and it would not be this thing that, well, everyone thinks it's cool, right, Ken? You and I do. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. But it's hard for a lot of people to get excited about <laughs> literature and poetry that's not in a language they understand, but that's okay. There's tons of translations, and yet, it's important to hear some of this stuff in the original because it can still resonate. You can still understand a lot of it. Oh, and absolutely. like any body of literature, it reflects the society and the culture which created it. Now, how do we have let's, – let's start here before we <laughs> dig into the actual linguistics, and I'll try to be brief about this. How do we even have works of Anglo-Saxon in Anglo-Saxon? Well, we almost don't. Very fortunately – uh, By happy accident, happy, we have some of them. happy accident, and a couple of very foresighted yeah. friends of Henry VIII. So when Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries, he did that to get the money and the land and the, and the gold and the, all those things. And then some of his other buddies like, well, there are these books here in this property that I just got too. Do you want those? No, I don't want those. You, what? Burn them. I don't care. <laughs> so they begin to gather these books. At this point, they can't really, the, the art of being able to read it is gone. Right. More or less, it's gone. Right. But they need to relearn it because in all of these monastic land grants that happen over the last several hundred years, that's how they determine who has the land now. So, so the, yeah, so it's not, it's, not, it's not a love of art and not, preserving not the literature. First, it's it's not, like, oh, we need to translate these deeds so I know who owns what. Exactly. Where does the, <laughs> where, yeah, where's the property line and, and who owns this farm and who owns that monastery? Right. So how does it all divide out? So that's how they start studying Anglo-Saxon. And, and, a lot, and some of these people begin to just collect them as—, as Curiosities. curiosities, yeah, yeah, as in as antiquities, and, what, yeah, and, the, and the term was antiquarians. Yes, people, I love that term. He's an antiquarian of some note. <laughs> That's what I would rather be than a historian, just because it sounds cooler. Exactly. Um, but they keep these manuscripts, and that's the only reason they're here. And a lot of these folks, a lot of them are lost to fire, and a lot of, and the great Beowulf. All of you know, oh, yeah, you've heard of Beowulf, the great story, the great example. Of uh, Anglo-Saxon literature, we have one copy, and it almost didn't make it. It yeah. was literally about two minutes away from being burned up in a fire where a lot of other Anglo-Saxon manuscripts were lost. Right. So that is how a lot of these have come to us. And even the Anglo-Saxon manuscripts we have, probably two-thirds of them are of a um, clerical 
they're they're not secular. They're not secular right, like Beowulf. Right, right. They are they are um, they're religiously Resist based. Works, yeah. They're either, they're the Bibles or codexes or things right. like that. And and those are neat too. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, I would still argue that those are a form of literature. Well, yeah, yeah. So so even the body of physical extant pieces we have is small. The body of secular work is incredibly smaller. small. So yeah. we're so glad to have what we yeah, have. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, starting with Beowulf. You know, there's been the controversy, or we're not necessarily controversies, but just competing theories as to how early is it composed, was it a work of a single author, things like this. And Tolkien's one of the ones who very early on was arguing for a fairly early composition date and a single author. And, you know, Tolkien's doing this in the 30s, just, you know, in a lot of ways, just based on, he was so immersed in all the Germanic languages. The folks he spoke, Absolutely. spoke German, Old English, Old Norse, Old Swedish, Icelandic. He he read the and his fo- he and he and his folk had pretty much figured out old goth. Uh, old yeah, old and and so he would read and com- he would do comparative readings of this language versus this language, this story versus this story, this saga versus this. So he's just he just has a feel for it. And and a lot of I I'm sorry I think that a lot of his thing in addition from going this is a linguistic comparison, so it was probably this. He just felt this just feels. Like how a single author, because he was an yes. author himself, this feels like a unified voice. And right. This, you know, you, you can't really quantify that in a in a scholarly you know article in, with for your peers. But as it turns out, scholars are now coming around to, yeah, he was kind of right, based on what we now know and what we can analyze. It looks like, yeah, you know, yeah, and seventy the, years later, yeah, seventy <laughs> years later, and and the beauty of it is, it's it's you know the the, the Christian elements are clearly interpolations at some point, but that's fine. They don't necessarily change the narrative. But what's really cool about it is they've been able to, you know, you can look at it, and a lot of the names and battles and places mentioned in it correspond to archaeological and other primary source evidence. A lot of the events, aside from the dragon and Grendel's monster, I mean, Grendel and... That we know of. Yes. Don't go out at night in Scandinavia. Anyway, a lot of, you know, these things are real. The the Shieldings and and the the other folks are real people. There are real battles between the Yates and these other people. These things really happened. And so it's kind of cool that this great work of literature, because it is a very cool work. It's not just, oh, Conquering Hero does everything. There are a lot of nuances in it. There's there's a very fatalistic, that, that, fatalistic Germanic Northern European worldview of all will die combined with that little sliver of Christianity overlaid on it. It's a very interesting work. And the society that it the expresses. Society. It's yes. just that, yeah, it's, you know, everything, everything's awful. This world is awful. Right. My life is awful. We're all going to die. We're starving to death. And yet. Let's go to the meat hall. Let's go to the meat hall. And, and hear some sagas. And we're still going to try. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, and that is the perfect springboard that I'm going to claim. Uh, to go into, as you know, one of my favorite passages from uh, the Battle of Malden, which is a, a later Anglo-Saxon poem written uh, late 900s, early 1000s at most, but about the actual Battle of Malden that takes place in the, in the late 900s it, when that's that renewed wave of Viking invasions that ultimately results in Canute becoming king. But there, there's a the, the Viking fleet comes in, the, the local Earl Bjorthelm, uh, has the has the good ground, and there's only a narrow causeway. The Vikings can't get across, and the Viking says, "Well, if you'll allow us to come over, yeah. we'll fight on equal terms." And he and in his and his as the poem described in his offermode, his offermode, his offermode, his his overly confident spirit uh, or high war spirit, he lets them come over, and of course the the Saxons get get routed. 
But they're, uh, which is all, it's just a lovely thing about how their culture works. But also there's this passage where Bjornfelm has been killed and his retainers, some of them are wavering. But then some of the like the old guard, the 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 the, the, the hearth troops, the 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 earl's personal retainers are like, no, no, we're we're gonna, yes, you're right, we're gonna die. That's right. If you stay here, you're gonna die. But we ain't leaving. But we're not leaving. We're we're going to die here because that's what you do. And in the uh, the Anglo-Saxon, let me see if I can sum this up. It's a fullbod liche bjornas lerde, hik shall the hadra, hjorte the kendre, mut shall the mor. And, and that translates as when, this, when the old retainer, he says, full boldly, the old retainer taught the young ones. <laughs> I just <laughs> love that. The old gray beard shakes his spear and says, ah, uh, it shall uh, thought shall be harder. Meaning, not that it's hard to think, but our thoughts will be skilled. Keen. They'll, they'll yes. be keen. They'll be, they'll, they'll be hard. They'll be focused. Uh, de kindra. Heart will be keener. The heart will feel. Most keenly than ever you have in your life. shall demar, our spirit shall soar, though our battle might lessens. As we get weaker in battle, we will grow stronger in spirit. And fight harder. Oh, just, it just, it's, that beautiful. Is, that is my favorite passage, well, my second favorite passage <laughs> from Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, so, and so, but once again... That speaks to the heart of this Anglo-Saxon culture in their literature. This literature is delivering a very clear message. Right. And this and this poem, you know, this is one of the poems that's sung around the hearth. This is the thing that's taught to the warriors. This is what you do. Don't don't you be under any illusion. Your purpose is to die, either defending your Lord or conquering those people. You have eaten hey. his bread and taken his exactly. gold, so now it's time. And you know what? If you survive the battle, then you will have glory in the meat hall. Other than that, your job's to die. And you'd better not live <laughs> you better if your not. Lord is dead. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So it's just it's just a very good snapshot into the way these these people you know think. And this is one of those things that also shows there's sort of a commonality with that and the Scandinavian invaders, the Viking invaders. This is something. And yeah. we're, I, you know what? I, I shouldn't go down this rabbit hole because this is something we need to talk about with the culture. <laughs> we'll just stick to the literature right now. So anyway, but but your favorite passage, you oh, might say. Yeah, it's it's from a uh, oh, the Venerable Bede. Yes. Who is a who is one of those great Golden Age monks who has written all these amazing things. There's a couple of things he does that also is so beautiful. So he describes a sparrow. And this is his. This is how he's trying to describe the life that we live. We don't know where we come from. We don't know where we go when we die. But right now, we know we're here. Yeah. And he describes a sparrow out in the cold. It's it's dark. It's it's northern Europe. It's it's dark. It's cold. <laughs> and there's a sparrow out there just flittering around. And suddenly, the sparrow flies into the door of the mead hall. And in the mead hall, it is warm. It is festive. It is mm-hmm. light. It is joyful. And then the sparrow circles the room a couple of times and flits out the other door, and he's back into the darkness. And that's that's Venerable Bede's metaphor for this is our life. Yeah. But he is also trying to describe, you know, why even even though with a joy, all on Artha Recha, Artha Recha, everything on earth is difficult. <laughs> And that's such a simple <laughs> phrase. And yet, oh, isn't it though? Isn't it? Every, or, 
everything on earth or as the is onion, difficult. Or as the Onion once said in one of their headlines, Area Man wonders why everything has to be such an ordeal. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> the mineral bead, the, mineral bead. the onion, there's a through line. <laughs> they stole it from him. They did, they did. Um, but no, but, that's a great one. Yeah, exactly. And once again, illustrates that worldview that they had, e- even with the Christian overlay, there's right. still that feeling of— And that's, that's, that's one of the most remarkable things about the Anglo-Saxon literature, and like Beowulf, yeah. and even Bede, who is this incredible—he's venerable, right? Yeah. He's old, he, yeah. and they love him, and yeah. he's a, a monk. He's a Christian, no right. question. And yet, there's this combination of we're Christian, and yet we know that, oh, it's such a struggle. And yeah. and and we believe, but who knows what actually lies beyond right. that door of the meat hall. Right. We, we're in the meat hall now, so let's let's do the best we can and fight yeah, exactly, the good fight. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that the, the whole meat hall culture, uh, I just... Uh, uh, uh. All right, the reason I'm making those sounds is because I'm thinking of one movie that I would like to really excoriate. excoriate everyone involved in it, and that was the 2007 animated Beowulf, which, don't watch it. If you have watched it, Forget it. <laughs> but then, The 13th Warrior, uh, based know. on the novel Eaters of the Dead. But they couldn't have that Hollywood movie. I went into that one with a lot of trepidation. I was like, you know what? Fair enough. As far as a meat hall in a movie, that's Wait, a pretty good depiction. The material culture is awful in this movie. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's just terrible. Yeah, but, but, but. I, remember, I remember we were talking about this movie when it came out. We were at the Atlanta History Center. That's right. That's right. And we and we knew we were going to go see it separately. <laughs> And we came into work Monday morning, <laughs> just and we're kind of looking at each other. Yeah, okay, who's going to go think? first? What do you think? <laughs> and we were both surprised at the other because we were both like, it kind of captured the spirit, the spirit of the age. It did. It did. It really did. Those scenes in the meat hall were absolutely believable. That that sense of camaraderie, the just yeah, it was just all there. The, the, the fatalism. But you know that whole um, there, there's been considerable debate, and there again, this is like for real this time about how the poetry, and not just Beowulf, but but also like, you know, The Wanderer, which I know is one of your favorite Anglo-Saxon oh, poems. Oh, yes. it's just gorgeous. But, you know, how were they delivered? You know, were they sung? Were they spoken? The word what? What does it actually mean? <laughs> you know, uh, which is how Beowulf starts, by the way. And some people claim it's... As a matter of fact, J.R. Tolkien used to start his classes... With that word. With that word when he was teaching Beowulf. He would come in, stalk about the room, fix everyone with a gaze, and be silent for a few seconds, then, what the? And just roll into it. Anyway, the word can mean what, can mean so, can mean, you know. Listen up. Listen up. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think there is any one meaning. It's, it's whatever you need it to mean and the tone of voice you exactly. use, much like a poem would be. Like, like the word mode. Yeah, we, exactly, still, we still exactly. have the word mode. Right. And yet, over mode, and the, over mode. And, and it's in the, uh, the birthnoth, yeah, the birth exactly. So there, are, you know, there's a lot of different things we do know, and, and it's and it's probably that there was a combination of things. I, I, you know, maybe some poets did sing the whole thing. They certainly had the beautiful Anglo-Saxon lyre, which I have a reproduction of here at the. It goes twingity twing. It's, it's such a very, very historic nice. way. It's very nice. Oh, I should have had it in here to play. <laughs> oh, well. Well, and, and Harold should have waited for battle the next day. But, you know, that's, right. that's just life. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it's a it's a very effective. And you and I both looked at, what's the name of the guy that does the full version of Beowulf from memory oh, with the no, harp? I can't remember now. But, it, but, it's, but it's, 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 only, it's only the first part. Yeah, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's very effective, sung, and spoken. And he does a he, combination he of does. both. Well, of course, it's a performance piece. You yeah. know, think of it as you know, a tone poem where some some parts I'm going to sing with the melody, some parts I'm just going to pluck a line as I say some 
pluck a, a, a string as I say some words. Yeah. It, but it's just a wonderful art form, and you really see how perfectly suited it is to that central fire in that meat hall. The drinks are going round. The Anglo-Saxon poetry and the way it was delivered was just so uniquely suited to the people. It's just fantastic. Absolutely. And I think that that can't is... can't say any more than that. And we can't, so we better not because we're out of time. Exactly. <laughs> so, bye! Then Again with Ken and Glenn is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. If you've enjoyed listening to Then Again with Ken and Glenn, please make sure that you subscribe and help us out by writing a review. To learn more about the Northeast Georgia History Center, visit www.negahc.org.